Well, hello, everyone. This is J.B. Hickson with MBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled here in the tall timbers of uh, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Thursday, October 26, 2023. It's been a great week. I've been so privileged to have a number of key Bible prophecy experts and particularly experts on Israel, both from a political, geopolitical, and prophetic standpoint. We've been focusing on Israel all week, and uh, we continue that theme today. I've got Bill Salas waiting in the wings. I'll bring him on in just a moment to talk about Israel's enemies. Uh, but uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back uh, to Monday. We started out the week with Tom Hughes, a great interview talking about why Israel matters. Dr. Randall Price was on Tuesday talking about God's plan for Israel's future. Uh, today, of course, we've got Bill Salas. Tomorrow, I'll have John Haller on the program talking about what happens next for Israel. And in addition to those excellent guests, we had our regular Wednesday world events update with Randy. And of course, Israel uh, occupied a lot of that discussion as well. <clears throat> but uh, Saturday this week, we've got a special weekend podcast. As promised, I'm going to have my two good friends, Shane and Randy. Uh, we have them both uh, on separate programs uh, regularly. Uh, Shane is our resident technologist, Randy, our geopolitical expert, uh, both of them dear friends of mine. And they'll be on together on the same program this Saturday to talk about technology and warfare. So uh, that's the rundown for this week. I uh, hope you'll catch what's already aired and look forward to what's coming up. Uh, before I look at a quick passage of Scripture, just want to mention also, be sure and check out notbyworks.org. That's our website. We've got a place where you can sign up for our newsletter, which we send out twice a week. We also have lots of great resources there, totally free videos, podcasts. Uh, you can also check out the online store <clears throat> and uh, get some free materials that <clears throat> excuse me that are available in the free section of the store we post new stuff every week we just posted some stuff uh, this week so that's all free love love for you to check that out while you're at the store you can check out some of the other resources that we have for sale uh, including our premier membership uh, which is for premier members only we do periodic uh, members only zoom sessions for q a we also post some exclusive content that's just for our Premier members, it's just a small monthly fee, uh, or you can pay an annual subscription as well. Uh, but check that out. Uh, I'd love for you to consider joining up for our Premier membership. Now, we're going to be talking with uh, Bill Salas about Israel's enemies. And I thought as I was thinking about a passage of Scripture to kind of use as a <clears throat> kind of a launching point, uh, the prophet Joel. Joel was a 6th century prophet. Uh, he ministered for about 10 years, 597 to 587 BC is what most scholars have arrived at based on the internal and external data. Uh, and the first three chapters of Joel's short prophecy relate to Israel's future judgment during the 70th week of Daniel, that, that seven-year tribulation period, uh, often referred to as the day of the Lord. Uh, day of the Lord can mean different things in different contexts, but uh, Joel is referring to that future uh, period of judgment. But what's great about Joel is it also uh, brings uh, light at the end of the tunnel. It reminds us that there is a future for national Israel, and uh, someday when Israel, when Israel returns to the Lord, then uh, God will usher in uh, the kingdom. So let me just read a few passages. I won't read the whole chapter, of course, but I think it's relevant, especially as we see what's unfolding over in Israel today. It would be very easy for people to think, oh my, we are in 
the day of the Lord. It's unprecedented uh, bloodshed and attacks and horror and terror uh, being uh, propagated against God's people Israel. Uh, So chapter 2 of uh, Joel begins, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. By the way, that's verse 2, and Jesus kind of reiterates that same thing in the Olivet Discourse, talking about uh, the tribulation period when he says it's a day like uh, no other. But if we skip down in Joel chapter 2 to verse uh, 13, he says to the people of Israel, turn to me with all your heart. Actually, verse 12. Verse 13, render your heart and your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Indeed, at the end of the tribulation, the remnant in Israel will cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just as Jesus uh, prophesied that they will. Uh, you know, at his first advent, the leaders in Israel cried, crucify him, crucify him, and only a small remnant received him as the Messiah. But the second time around, the nation's leaders will indeed return to the Lord and will cry out and call on the name of the Lord, as Joel goes on uh, to say. He again again says in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a great sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies, let the bridegroom come, go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. In other words, when that day comes, everyone will come from far and wide. The Old Testament prophets in many different places talk about that great regathering in belief in the land. And and uh, the people will say, the priests will say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? That's what's happening today. Israel is being attacked and uh, uh, and mocked, and people are, the, the unbelieving zealots, the terrorists uh, are out there mocking Yahweh. Uh, where is your God? But the Bible tells us in Joel 2.18, the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. That word pity is not the same kind of connotation as we have in English. In in Hebrew, it means have compassion or spare. And indeed, the Lord will have compassion on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied by them. And no longer will I make you a reproach among the nations. Well, we sure look forward uh, to that day, and it's going to come uh, to pass, as Joel 2.32 says, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. And the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Well, uh, Bill, it's certainly uh, sad times right now, uh, horrific times, but it's nice to be reminded that a better day is coming. Thanks so much for being with us today. How have you been, my friend? I've been good, JB. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm sure you've been uh, super busy with uh, all the different TV and radio radio interviews, and I appreciate you taking the time to to come on the MBW podcast. But I'd like to, uh, I'm just going to kind of throw it to you. I'll try to limit my interruptions. I'm going to make some notes, and, and every now and then I'll interject some thoughts or questions. But uh, obviously, you've been studying this a long, long time. The Lord's given you some great insight into uh, what's happening prophetically. 
but we're focusing today on Israel's enemies. So how do you, just a broad broad stroke here, and you can take it from there, how do you see what's happening today with Hamas and Iran and um, all these others kind of correlating with biblical prophecy? Well, they are all involved in biblical prophecy uh, by their ancient names. you got the Gaza, ancient Felicia, that, that's where you'd find modern-day Hamas. Uh, Hezbollah is up there in ancient Tyre. Uh, actually, Tyre is still a city in Lebanon. Uh, Gabal, uh, Tyre, Sidon. Iran, of course, under the banner of Persia. They became Iran in 1935. Ezekiel 38, verse 5, talks about Persia and a, the Gog of Magog invasion. But also Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 39, talks about Iran under the name of Elam. Actually, Jeremiah wrote his prophecy. I think Iran has dual prophecies in the end times. Ezekiel, of course, 38. But also Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 49, dealing with Elam, was actually written about 596 B.C., about 20 years before Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel 38, that prophecy. Assyria, of course, Syria is in there. Damascus is a subject of prophecy. Uh, we also notice that Israel is bombing around Damascus. Matter of fact, recently, a few days ago, they took out of commission the Damascus airport and the Aleppo airport. And I believe we find Aleppo also in prophecy under ancient Harpod in Jeremiah chapter four, uh, 49, verses 23. And, and all of these prophecies, by the way, J.B., um, that we're starting to talk about, uh, I've written extensively about in my Psalm 83 book, but also in my latest book called The Future War Prophecies. So I don't know where you want to start, but anywhere you want to go, we've got names and prophecy with those countries and populations. Amen. So first, I failed to mention, where can folks get in touch with you if they want to get the book and they want to uh, check out your materials? Um, my website is prophecydepot.com, prophecydepot, like homedepot.com. Uh, of course, a lot of the products are on Amazon, but Mark Bezos is making enough money, right? So <laughs> Amen. products can come to our store at prophecydepot.com. Prophecydepot.com. So I think I'll start with, uh, you mentioned the Ezekiel 38 war, and of course, uh, Iran is mentioned there, as well as a host of others, Syria, Turkey, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, do you see what's happening now as um, actually the beginning of that fulfillment, or is it setting the stage for that? Neither, both? What What are your, how do you think this relates to Gog and Magog? Well, uh it's, that's a good starting point because I think we go from there and then kind of work backwards towards where we're at presently. Uh, you said you had Tom Hughes on your show recently. Tom and I were also just did a show, and we talked about this topic. Is this heading towards Psalm 83, what we're seeing in the Middle East, or is this leading toward Ezekiel 38? Is Ezekiel 38 imminent? A lot of our colleagues would say Ezekiel 38 is imminent, but Tom and I both concurred that there are preconditions that exist in prior to the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38, and some of those preconditions are not met yet, and until they are all met, that prophecy can't find fulfillment. So, but what Tom and I discussed on the preconditions are Israel has to be dwelling securely in the last days, uh, a peaceful people, a tranquil people, dwelling without walls, bars, nor gates, in the midst of the land. And receive a great plunder and booty because that's the motive of the Russian invaders. Russia leads um, a coalition of nine, including Turkey and Iran, to invade Israel in the latter days for plunder and booty. And we pointed out in that video, as I've done in my books, 
that Israel is not dwelling securely without walls, bars, nor gates. Yes, they're in the midst of the land, and yes, it's in the latter days, but they're not a peaceful people. Now, yes, they've got plunder and booty, but probably not as much as Russia is going to be coming after, after certain events start to stage set. And those events, I believe, involve the very populations that we're talking about in the news right now with the Gaza, Hamas, Hezbollah, etc., Iran in particular. And so I, I say well, we've got several things that have to happen before Israel can become a peaceful people tearing down the walls. We've got walls all around the nation of Israel. It's the most fenced-in and fortified country in the world. They've got two walls up to the north separating Lebanon border with Hezbollah into Israel. They've got the 403-mile partition wall running down the heart of Israel, keeping Palestinian terror out of Israel proper. Some places that's 20 feet high, filled with concrete. They've got walls, of course, around the Gaza, which were breached when Gaza did their invasion. Uh, they've got walls along Jordan now, and Benjamin Netanyahu is wanting to even build that longer and stronger because weapons have been smuggling through Jordan into the Palestinians in the West Bank. They've also got walls down by the Sinai. So just to mention, they're not dwelling without walls, bars, nor gates. But Ezekiel 28, verses 14, uh, excuse me, 24 through 26, tells us when they will dwell securely. And I, and I don't, as a matter of fact, I think I'll pull it up real quick and read it to your viewers. Yeah, and the passage you quoted a moment ago, and, and Tom and I talked about this too. He mentioned that you and he had talked about it, but is Ezekiel, I think it's 3811, where it talks about the safety and the peace. I might have that wrong, but off the top of my head, I think that's what it was. But, um, so at the very least, this this can't be the the Ezekiel thirty eight thirty nine war because it absolutely is does not fit the description as it relates to Israel dwelling securely. So it it, it may be setting the stage for it, and I'll let you talk about more about that here in a second. But uh, but it's it, what I'm hearing you saying is that this can't be the Ezekiel thirty eight thirty nine war, right? Yeah. However, I do want to say before I tell you when. It can be the Ezekiel 38 war. The Ezekiel 38 war is where this is all ultimately heading. It is the marquee event of the end times. Uh, basically, because God is going to deal with this formidable coalition, Israel's defense forces can't stop them. Although Israel's defense forces will be involved in other biblical prophecies, which time permitting we can talk about, but it won't involve the American forces. But God stops it with a you know a great earthquake, Flooding rains, uh, prior brimstone, great hailstones. The world's going to say, hey, that was not a normal victory. They're going to realize the God of the Jews stopped that. And he wants them to realize that because in Ezekiel 39.7, it says, I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. They shall not profane it anymore. And the nation shall know I'm the Lord, the Holy One in Israel, which requires two important elements. There has to be a my people Israel, which there is today a chosen people out of the Abrahamic covenant. There has to be, he's the Holy One in Israel, there has to be a promised land for those chosen people. That Israel exists today as well. So what he's going to do when he stops Ezekiel 38 is put the world on official notice that he is the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hitler could not stop there being a my people Israel. The Arabs were going to talk about in Psalm 83 and other prophecies could not be successful because there has to be a chosen people. Uh, they can't take away the land, which is a goal of uh, Psalm 83, verse 12. They want the pastures of God for their own possession. Those things cannot happen. Iran, who wants to wipe Israel off the map, cannot be successful because 
if they, if they were successful, there would be no ability for God to make his holy name known in the midst of his people Israel. So this is all that's what's play. These, these enemies of Israel surrounding Israel with deadly weapons now want to wipe Israel off the map. Some of, the, some of them are proxies of Iran. Some of those proxies of Iran are actually in their own confederacy in Psalm 83. Not, none of them involved Ezekiel 38 apart from Iran as Persia. And they cannot be successful. And they don't, they don't like Israel. They want to wipe Israel off the map, which is also the goal of Psalm 83 verse 4, which says they come together, this confederacy, to cut the name of Israel off that the name of Israel can be remembered no more. So, I mean, all this stuff that we're talking about right now um, is heading toward Ezekiel 38, but I think there's other prophecies that have to happen in order to, so that Israel can dwell securely, tear down the walls. In fact, as I conclude this little topic here, I want to read when Israel will dwell securely because you and Tom talked about it. It says in Ezekiel 38, 11, I think it's also in verse 8, that the, the Jews will dwell securely. And the Hebrew words are yeshav v'tag. And it's, as you read Ezekiel, he uses those terms several times. And in context, it's not because of politically brokered peace plans. It's because Israel has done away with their enemies militarily, and they can, can dwell securely. And they can tear down the walls and be a peaceful people living tranquilly at that point in time. And then Ezekiel 38 can happen. But we we're told, when will Israel dwell securely? Fortunately, Ezekiel tells us 10 chapters earlier in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 24 through 26. I'll read it. I'll read it and kind of briefly explain it because I think it's really important that we should be watching for this because it dovetails into what we're seeing going on right now in the Middle East. There's going to have to be judgments executed upon the enemies of Israel. That's what Ezekiel's going to tell us here. And that's when Israel can dwell securely. And then that's when Ezekiel 38 can happen. So here's what it says, Ezekiel 28, verse 24. And there shall no longer be a prickling briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all those who are around them who despise them. They shall no, they, Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. So people around Israel who despise them, are the reasons they're like a painful thorn. At some point, there'll no longer be that prickling briar or painful thorn. We're going to find out when that happens in the next few passages, few verses. <clears throat> so thus says the Lord God, when I've gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. So God has been, as we know, gathering the Jews back into the promised land, my people Israel back into the promised land. And they will dwell safely there, Yeshav Batag. Same words. They'll build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely, Yeshav Batag uses that again. But when I that's when will this happen? When I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them, then they shall know that I'm the Lord their God. So judgments have to be executed upon all those enemies round about Israel so that Israel can dwell peacefully, Yeshav Batag. And that's where I think is we're headed. The things that we're seeing going on right now are going to go into other prophetic prophecies, probably in Psalm 83, probably in Isaiah 17, probably Jeremiah chapter 49 dealing with Elam, the other prophecy dealing with Iran. So depending on where you want to go and how we can sequence those, I'm prepared so, to yeah, talk about let, let's, let's talk about Psalm 83 and then Isaiah 49. Um, so, but you're saying that this is going that Israel's going to win in the short term uh, and be secure, uh, presumably maybe with the U.S.'s help. And then it, when they're secure, 
uh, that's when the the you know the time will be ripe for the northern invasion of the uh, northern alliance with Russia. Is that am I understanding that right? Yeah, as Israel uh, as judgments are executed upon those around Israel that despise them, and of course Hamas Hamas and Hezbollah are at the top of that list, and they're not in Ezekiel thirty eight. Which just briefly to let the listeners know, Ezekiel thirty eight forms an outer ring of countries. None of them share common borders with Israel. They've never been Israel's notorious enemies. Versus Psalm 83, which we'll talk about shortly, from an inner circle of countries that all share common borders with Israel, that have hated Israel since time immemorial, that voted against their being in Israel in 1947, that came to war with Israel in 1948, 1967, and 1973. Two different distinct uh, prophecies that we're talking about. But just so for your listeners, Ezekiel 38, the general consensus of who's involved in that outer ring of countries coming after Israel for plunder and booty, different than the motive of Psalm 83, which will, they're coming for land. But that involves Russia, Turkey, Iran, some of the breakaway republics of the Soviet Union, we would say what could be in there, some of the stands, uh, maybe some of the southern steppes of Russia, some of the North African countries, uh, Ethiopia, Libya, Sudan, maybe Somalia, Tunisia. Some people even throw Morocco in there. Some people even throw in Germany. So this is a formidable offense like we talked about, and God will have to stop that. And in the process, he will say, I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. So we've got that's who they are, and that's coming, and that's going to be huge when that happens. But that none of the countries that's involved with Israel right now, Hamas, Hezbollah skirmishing up to the north, and that, that could go out of out of really big, really fast, once Iran gives them the green light. Uh, none of those countries are involved in Ezekiel 38. Yeah, and so biblical history, it's it's the, the uh, notorious enemies uh, of Israel in ancient times that are, you know, going to constitute these first few wars. The, the, the uh, Gog-Magog battle is more the outer uh, ring. So, uh, so talk to us about uh, you said the Psalm 83, they're coming after land. That seems kind of relevant for what's happening now, because uh, in spite of the fact that, as uh, as I mentioned in my interview with uh, Randall Price, uh, Andy Woods has a great slide. I'm sure others have it as well that shows uh, a map of the whole Middle East region and all of the Islamic nations. Uh, uh, and then right in the middle is this, you know, dot, tiny little dot of Israel. And it's like the implication is, why won't the, the Muslims, why can't they be satisfied with all this other land? Why do they need this last little tiny piece uh, of real estate? But that is what they want. They see that it's not so much as a geographic play but as a religious play it's a holy land it's it's got spiritual implications and so they really are coming after it for land they they don't like uh that uh israel is in control of jerusalem and so i think you know if if i'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit more on the psalm 83 aspect from your perspective because it sure seems like it's all about the land right now yeah, and that's the motive. Psalm 83, verse 12, let us take ourselves for ourselves the pastures of God for possession, the promised land. They don't want a two-state solution, JB. They want a one-state solution. They want another Arab state called Palestine. And in order to do that, the psalm talks about they will come together as a confederacy. They will form crafty council, a devious plan. 
that the name of Israel can be destroyed, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. They form a confederacy that we're talked about, told about. And the countries we can list who they are in just a moment. But there are those enemies around Israel who despise them, according to Ezekiel 28, the prickling briar and the, and the painful thorn. Now, we're, we're told, as we continue to talk about the broad sweep of those countries, not involved in Ezekiel 38, is an important prophecy in Zechariah 12, verses 2, which I think kind of comes as a climax to Psalm 83. And it says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling or dizziness or intoxication, in some translations, Zechariah 12, 2, unto all the people round about, not the nations of the world at large, but the people round about, the enemies around them who despise them. And when they lay siege in both against Judah and against Jerusalem, a final siege against Judah and Jerusalem, the people's round about. When that happens, the Lord's going to make Jerusalem like a cup of trembling to them. Of course, Jerusalem is supposedly the third holiest city in Islam. It's not mentioned once in the Quran, uh, but it's supposedly the third holiest city because Muhammad was there and apparently he ascended to heaven from there. On some in the ethereal realm, through some on some donkey. Now, I, I don't I don't believe that for a second, but that's what, one of the reasons I think it's the third holiest city. The Lord says He's going to go on in Zechariah twelve verses four um, that He's going to strike every horse with confusion, every rider with madness, and these roundabout peoples, and every horse with blindness. He's going to supernaturally intervene. It appears to be. In the vernacular of our time, of course, they're not going to be riding horses in when they lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem. He's going to strike the horses with confusion. I think there'll be artilleries and tank malfunctioning. We could actually see this. I'm taking some liberties here, but this is what the prophecy says in relationship to the siege upon Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, every rider will hit with madness. In other words, the riders will panic when they see uh, things malfunctioning. And then it says they'll hit every blindness, every horse with blindness. Appears to be, you know, guidance systems and things are taken down. And then it goes on to say in verse 5 that the Israeli defense forces will be emboldened. And in verse 6, we're told how it concludes. In that day, Zechariah 12, verse 6. In that day, in the day that Jerusalem becomes a cup of trembling, I will make the governors, or that's the Israeli defense forces, of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again. In her own place. So it's talking about the Israeli defense forces being like a fiery torch, taking the peoples roundabout, who evil neighbors, who despise Israel, and devouring them like a fiery torch on the right hand and on the left hand. But their attempt to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem will fail. But the Israeli defense forces will be used to, to succeed. They now, will be tool to execute judgments on those around Israel who despise. Yeah. Yeah, so that so you're correlating this to uh, Psalm 83, the first wave, right? Not Ezekiel 38. Correct. Okay, but it, roundabout. It, isn't it true that in both cases the end result is a supernatural victory? Uh, you know, in other words, God, as we you already talked about, God intervenes and protects Israel from the, the Gog Magog alliance, but also the Psalm 83. So. Um, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you, but I'm just saying, in, in you know, people. I've heard people apply verse two in particular, verse. Uh, let's see, verse three. Uh, you know, and, and talking about how they, these people are confused; they don't know why this is happening. All of a sudden, their planes are falling out of the sky, and how that could be uh, Gog Magog. But as you point out, verse two clearly says the surrounding peoples 
which is not Russia, uh, and it's not you know Turkey, and it's not Iran. So, um, so very interesting. Continue. Yes. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, and I've been pointing out in my teachings that clearly Ezekiel 38, the defeat is supernatural. The Lord goes into his gives his best weapons out of his heavenly arsenal. And it's clear the Lord did that and stops those massive troops, which today would be about two and a half million troops coming down against Israel if that was the, if it were to happen in the near future. Um, is Psalm 83, when we look at Zechariah verse 12, we also see it looks like divine intervention, but in concert with working with the Israeli Defense Force. Mm-hmm. So the Israeli Defense Force will be the fiery torch, but they will have seen this divine intervention. They will have seen malfunctions, madness, and things like that. Then they will go forward embolden, and they will take out their enemies around them. One of the things you and I talked about before we started the show was, um, you know, desperately everybody's been trying to get this two-state solution. It's, it's failing miserably. It's always failed. It's not biblically endorsed. All the past presidents have tried it. Joe Biden wants to do it. When, when the dust settles, over this bad you know situation, this assault that happened, this massacre that happened in Israel, uh, you're going to see Biden coming back trying to push for a two-state solution. Again, not biblically endorsed. So in relationship to what we've been talking about with those enemies round about Israel, the ex- judgments, they despise Israel, they're prickling briar, they're going to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem. Here's what, what your listeners need to know. God has a peace plan in place. It was developed you know, centuries ago, back at the time of Jeremiah. And we turn their attention to Zechariah 12, Jeremiah, excuse me, Jeremiah 12, verses 14 through 17. And I'm going to read it and break it down. It says, Thus says the Lord God, against all my evil neighbors, calling them evil neighbors, which they are, They're, they want to wipe Israel off the map, who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, which is the promised land. Behold, I will pluck them out, these evil neighbors, out of their land, because now it's going to be called Israel, which it was in 1948. And I will pluck the house of Judah out from among them, because there were Jews living in the neighboring territories, which are now Arab states. So he's got to, he's got to pull the Arabs out, the evil Arabs, pluck them out, forceful language, so that Israel can exist. He's got to get the Jews who will be reluctant to go back to Israel. He's got to get them out of the air blinds and put them into Israel. So I'll bring the house of Judah and pluck them out from among those Arab places. Then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone, Jew and Arab, to his heritage and everyone to his land. So we'll stop right there, verses 14 and 15. So God's saying, I'm going to... I'm going to re- remap, rezone the Middle East. This is the land for peace deal that God put together. And so you find after the First World War, when the Ottoman Empire was collapsed after 400 years of dominance over there, the Arab states, God was establishing the Arab states, not the United Nations. God did this sovereignly. They have Egypt back in 1922 gets its independence. You have in 1932, Saudi Arabia and Iraq. 1943, you have Lebanon. 1946, you have Syria and Jordan. So God has done this. He's plucked them out and he's given them their states. And then in 1948, here comes Israel, the rebirth of that nation. So we see that God did this sovereignly. Amazing land for peace deals. And all God said to them, this is all he's asking after to the Arab countries, the evil neighbors. And it shall be, verse 16 and 17, it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, 
then they shall be established in the midst of my people. There's only one condition. Swear by the God of the Bible that's done this for you, put you back in your homelands, and is giving compassion on you. And so doing all this, the sovereign act, just swear by my name, as you taught my people to swear by Baal back at Jeremiah's time, they were actually sacrificing their children to the false god Baal. God's not saying sacrifice your children to me. He's saying but with the same kind of zeal, Worship me. I'm the God of the Bible. I'm the true God. I'm the one who sets your states in order and puts you back in your lands. So swear by me. That's, I think it's a you know obviously a simple request. Just do that, okay? Of course, no one's aware of this. The Arabs aren't aware of this plan. The politicians aren't aware of this plan. But your listeners are now aware of it. And verse 17 says, But if they do not obey the evil neighbors, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. Now, that's a big deal, Okay. They're not obeying. They're worshiping Allah. They're not swearing by the God of the Bible, like the Jews swore by Baal. And so ultimately, we saw in Zechariah 12, verse 2, and verse 6, we saw in Ezekiel, verse 28, the judgments upon them. This dovetails in. Ultimately, these countries, which are coming after Israel, and they show up in Psalm 83, the countries round about, the evil neighbors, and God's going to utterly pluck up and destroy that nation. Well, we find out in Isaiah 17, Damascus goes down ceases from being a city. We find out in Jeremiah 49, verse 2, Amon Jordan goes down, becomes a desolate mount. We find out in Isaiah chapter 19 that five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan, which is Hebrew. So we get into those other prophecies. Once these things start to happen, Israel wins these wars. There's prophecies about Hamas. There's prophecies about Saudi Arabia. They all, I think, dovetail into Psalm 83, the umbrella prophecy. And once we see these things happen, Israel can dwell securely in the midst of the land, and the world's going to take notice of that. And then here comes the Russian invaders looking for plunder and booty. Wow. So I think what folks need to be reminded of is that prophetically speaking at the macro level, Israel in the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week is there in uh, relative peace. Now, all hell is breaking loose on the world at large. But as it relates to Israel politically, you know, they've entered into this a treaty where they can worship God. They the temple has been rebuilt. They can do uh, you know their sacrifices, and they're 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 kind of not uh, being threatened in the first three and a half years by uh, all of the pagan nations. And then uh, at the midpoint, of course, the Antichrist breaks that covenant. He demands that Israel worship him and take the mark of the beast. The whole world has to take the mark of the beast, as I talk about in my new book, Rise of the Global Technocracy, The Spirit of the False Prophet. Um, and so, you know, as as we lead up to the end times, the the the, 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 the tri tribulation period, it's 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 going to eventually arrive at a place where Israel is secure in the land. Um, now we know that in the second half of the tribulation, immediately preceding the second coming, in those three and a half years, Israel is going to be horrifically attacked, and uh, this Antichrist is going to turn, and Satan is going to turn his his fiery uh, you know anger against uh, Israel. But it's it's going to get. I guess what I'm saying is it looks like it's going to get worse before it gets better, before it gets worse. Is that a good uh, overview? Yeah, it's going to get worse right now in the immediate future because we're seeing what's going to happen with those countries around Israel that will have judgments executed upon them to be utterly plucked up and destroyed in the Psalm 83 and the related prophecies we just talked about. Then Israel is going to be able to break down walls, dwell securely, uh, have plunder and booty from those Arab countries, as well as their own developing natural resources. 
Russia will find itself along with its coalition in need of those resources, and they will form a massive coalition uh, that Israel's defense forces cannot take out. They're going to come against Israel. I believe both of these things we're talking about, the judgment of the countries around Israel, the Ezekiel 38 outer ring of countries then coming subsequently. I believe these are all pre-tribulational events. Mm. And I think you can see the Israeli defense forces who in Ezekiel 37.10 are prophesied to become an exceedingly great army. You're going to see God um, show himself as God in Ezekiel 38. And it, we're told in Ezekiel 39, in the aftermath of God's divine stoppage of Russia's invasion, that the Jews are burying the dead for seven months. They're converting mm-hmm. weapons to fuel for seven years. And it says the whole world is going to be, Israel's gaining world renown. The world's going to go, wow. And we just saw, we just saw Russia get defeated. We're seeing Israel becoming a, a blooming nation, and the world's going to be in awe at the God of the Jews and that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, uh, Israel is going to be a different Israel than it is today. And for some reason, though, and I believe this is after the rapture and after Psalm 83 and after Ezekiel 38, for some reason, Israel then goes back to the bargaining table. They, something's bothering them. You know, they were dwelling very securely. They're very wealthy after God showed himself and stopped Ezekiel 38. But they come back to the bargaining table, and the Antichrist confirms a covenant with them. And that's when you have the start of the Daniel 70th week and Daniel 927. And the tribulation period starts in its two halves, the first half and the second half of a seven-year period. And, you know, and I don't think that false covenant has anything to do with the Arab-Israeli peace, because I think that happens militarily. Uh, I do think it has a lot to do with the Jews' ability to want to, to do a couple things. One, they want to rebuild their temple, because if they rebuild their temple, they believe they will hasten the coming of the Messiah. They don't realize Jesus Christ has already come as the Messiah. And then he comes, he's going to usher them ultimately into the Messianic kingdom, which is a high point of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, but there's another reason they're motivated to get into a covenant. And that's because in Isaiah 28, verses 15, it says they, they make a covenant with death or an agreement with Sheol, that when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not, not come over them. And they make this covenant in lies and falsehood, meaning it's politically expedient for them so that they can build their temple, so that their Messiah can come and he can get rid of the overflowing scourge. So what is the overflowing scourge and who's perpetrating it? That's the other party to the false covenant. We have to put a finger on them. Daniel says in Daniel 9.27, it's the many. But who are the many? He doesn't tell us. It doesn't put a face on it, whereas Isaiah 28.15 does. And in my, uh, my future prophecies book, War Prophecies book, I put a face on that for the readers. Yeah, so well, I want to come back to who are the many in Daniel 9, but uh, what's fascinating to me is it, it really makes a lot of sense when you think about what would prompt, you know, in, in, in that day, the Antichrist to sort of, I mean, we know this is all part of Satan's conspiracy to take over the world. He's been working on this since he got kicked out of heaven and that failed coup attempt. But what would prompt the Antichrist to set himself up as God, the abomination of desolation, as Daniel calls it, and Jesus calls it? Well, if the Jews are already looking for the Messiah, then he's going to stand up and say, okay, here I am. You know, I'm him. Worship me, which is really Satan, because remember, the Antichrist is just Satan's alter ego, and I believe Satan is indwelling the Antichrist at this point, uh, if not sooner. And so, 
the Jews, many of them will be deceived. And that also kind of correlates uh, well with Jesus' impassioned caution to the future nation of Israel that's alive during that tribulation period to be not deceived. He says, many will come in my name and say that they're the Christ, but be not deceived. And deception will be so great that even the elect uh, would be deceived. And so, uh, you know, I think uh, I think it makes a lot of sense that that covenant I think it's too simplistic uh, and reductionist to say, oh, it's just a, a military covenant that guarantees Israel's protection because, you know, they already have won by the time Gog and Magog happens. Never mind what people think about Psalm 83. I'm inclined to agree with you the more I study this, but I know there are others out there that don't necessarily take Psalm 83 the, the way uh, you do. But regardless, uh, Gog Magog, Ezekiel 30 and 39 is pretty uncontroversial. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, and Israel wins. So why are they needing to then sign a covenant if they've already won? It's got to be something else at play here. So uh, so yeah, just continue, and if you want to elaborate on who are the many there from Daniel 9, that would be helpful. Sure. Um, this is this is a pretty detailed explanation, and I've got to dovetail certain things through a process of deduction. I would tell your listeners this uh, two things. I've put this, what I'm about to say, in my next prophecies book. I also have online, they can read for free my thesis, which says the post rapture pre tribulation gap thesis, which is about 66 pages that talks about what happens after the rapture in that gap of period of time before the tribulation, but after the rapture, post rapture, but pre tribulation gap. A lot of us would say there's a gap because it's not the rapture that starts the tribulation. It's the confirmation of the false covenant that does that. Uh, some think this gap could be a few days, a few weeks. Some say a few years. I'm inclined to think it could be a few years. But it, it, it's going to happen at a time after the rapture when the supernatural is the natural, the paranormal is the new normal. Uh, Satan's restraint will be un gone. He is going to be doing deception, supernatural signs, and lying wonders. Uh, lots of things will be in play during this gap of time, and one of the things that's going to be at play is going to upset Israel, concern Israel, who's sitting high and mighty at this point in time because of Ezekiel 38 and Psalm 83, is there's going to be an overflowing scourge going on throughout the world, and it's being perpetrated by death and Sheol, according to Isaiah 28. At least they can stop it, whoever they represent. So again, it says, "I will you make a covenant with death and be in agreement with Sheol. When the overflowing scourge comes, Isaiah 20, 15, it will not overtake you. So we have to say, okay, listen, who is death and Sheol and what is the overflowing scourge? Well, interestingly, and I'm going to do the shortcut to get where I'm going to get. This is going to be controversial. If you thought Psalm 83 was controversial, <laughs> wait till your listeners hear this one. Okay, and I've done my research, and I, if someone can prove me wrong, I'd love to be proven wrong because it's so bizarre, but let me tell you what I see here. I believe the Antichrist is the white horseman. He comes on the scene, and at this point, he can confirm a covenant with, with Israel and the many. Most of our colleagues would say, well, that's exactly when Daniel's 70th week starts on the white horseman. He confirms the covenant. However, it doesn't say he confirms the covenant there. The Greek word for covenant used over 33 times in the New Testament is diatheke. It doesn't show up there, um, but it could be. Israel's on the scene. Now the Antichrist is on the scene. But is the other party on the scene that's concerning Israel, that's perpetrating an overflowing scourge? And I say to you, I don't think so yet, because I think they show up in the fourth horseman, death in Hades. Hades is a Greek word for Sheol. The covenant with Israel is made between death and an agreement with Sheol. And I believe 
That is the overflowing scourge. They have control over a quarter of the earth to kill through multiple means, swords, famines, pestilence, the beast of the earth. Now, a lot of people would say they're killing a quarter of the earth. That could be two billion people. And you know what? They could be, JB, but that's not technically what it says. They have authority or power in some translations over a quarter of the earth to kill, authority over a quarter of the earth to do something, to do uh, political moves, to do entertainment, to do sports. No, no, but they're doing it to kill. And they're killing a lot of people, probably at least a quarter of the earth. And I believe that's an overflowing scourge. Now, one of the people they're killing, anybody who dissents from them, would certainly be Christians. We find the fifth seal of saints, the very next seal, the fifth seal, saying, you know, they're saying, how much longer, which is an interesting question, why are they asking that question if the tribulation has already started? Because these are people who give their life for the Lord after the rapture. They're saying, how much longer until you're going to vindicate us for what's going on here? I think they're asking that question because they, they're in the gap. They don't know how much longer it's going to go on. By the way, Tom Hughes agrees with me on this, too. More and more people are starting to look at it this this way. And they're asking how much longer. And God says something very uh, poignant to them. The response is, you must rest a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren will be killed like you. So three periods of Christian martyrdom after the rapture. Fifth seal saints, fellow servants of the fifth seal saints, and the brethren of the fellow servants of the fifth seal saints. So I put those, I, I bracket those into three groupings. Again, controversial. No one's done this. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Fifth seal saints die in the gap. That's why they ask, how long, O oh Lord, until you redeem us? I mean, vindicate us. Who is killing people after the rapture? Well, there's two killing campaigns of Christians after the rapture. One is the Antichrist, but that doesn't happen to the mid part of the tribulation. He's beheading those who don't take the mark of the beast. And he comes on the scene in the White Horseman, but he doesn't do his killing until the mid part of the tribulation. The other party that's killing Christians is the harlot world religion. And Revelation 17, verses 6 is drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. So we've got two Christian killing campaigns, and this can't be the the fourth the fourth horseman can't be the Antichrist because he's the first horseman and he's not doing his d- dirty deeds until the mid part of the tribulation. So the other Christian the other killing campaign is the Harlot World religion. So unless the fourth horseman is another killing campaign apart from those two, which I have no reason to think it is, it's got to be the Harlot World religion who's killing Christians. Drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. I believe Israel's concerned about that overflowing scourge. A lot of people are dying, and they don't want to be the blood of the saints, the martyrs of Jesus, and the martyrs of the Jews. So they're going to form a covenant with death in Hades, who I believe with the harlot world religion, who I believe is in Rome, and they have strong holdings on Jerusalem. And the, remember Revelation chapter 11 says, after the start of the first part of the tribulation, the first half of the tribulation, John is measuring the temple for the worshipers therein, but not the outer court. That's going to be given over to the Gentiles, and they will trot over Jerusalem for three and a half years to get to that outer court. And I believe that that's going to be an opportunity for the Jews to build their temple, but not the outer court. They've got to let the, I believe that would be the Vatican and the Harlot World Religion to be able to get to and fro through Jerusalem, and they're not, they're not going to kill the Jews because they have this covenant. So that's why it's controversial. I think the overflowing scourge is perpetrated by the harlot world religion. I think they're the fourth horseman. I don't think it's Islam, like some people say. And I do believe that's how we get to where we get. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've we've talked about this uh, also on our, the previous time you were on the show, and I've been kind of uh, intrigued by it and looking into it ever since then and am continuing to do so. I don't think it's controversial. I mean, I know what you mean by that. It's 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 novel. There's not been anyone else out there kind of outlining the tribulation period as it relates to the book of Revelation the same way you do. But if I'm understanding you right, the the 70th week of Daniel then essentially officially begins with the sixth seal. Is that right? Yeah, sometime after the fifth seal between the, that and the sixth seal. Yeah, I mean, that that you know, we are still obviously saying the church is not going to be here for the entire seven years. This isn't the pre-wrath rapture view, which puts the rapture, you know, sometime in the second half of the second half, or, you know, the middle of the second half, five, six years in. You're still saying the church is is going to be rescued before the seven-year uh, period. Uh, you're just saying that some of these seals, if you piece it together and compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, are still part of the lead-up. And uh, I mean, I think everybody agrees. I've taught for years that the Antichrist comes on the scene prior to when he signs the the covenant or confirms the covenant. And so, uh, I mean, there's a lot of merit to it. I mean, especially the part that really has been, you know, kind of rattling around in my brain since the last time we talked, or really since you and I first talked uh, privately about this uh, in, I don't remember if it was in Orlando or in, I think it was in Fort Collins, but you know, there. You know, you you have to compare scripture and scripture. It's called theological synthesis. And Revelation six eight talks about death and Hades, and it's the same language that's used in Isaiah twenty eight. You know, fifteen and sixteen. Um, so it it has a lot to merit it. And you know, one of the things I love about your ministry, the more I've gotten to know you, which I really respect, is your knowledge and handling of the scripture doesn't mean we're always going to agree or come to the same conclusion. And I know you'll be the first to admit it doesn't mean you're perfect or infallible, but this isn't just some wild sensationalist speculation where you're just out there looking at the newspapers and coming up with these conclusions. You are, you know, knee deep in the word of God, really trying to make the pieces fit together and see how the dots get connected. And I think it's definitely worth thinking about. I'm not surprised that Tom, who's also a consummate biblicist, Tom Hughes, is also kind of uh, you know intrigued by uh, by this view. It also, just again, I'm just thinking through it out loud here. So uh, uh, this is not the view that I have espoused in my eschatology text, uh, which I wrote, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago when I was teaching full-time called What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times. And it's not commensurate with my uh, outline, my chart on the book of Revelation. But it is interesting to me that verse uh, 17 of Revelation 6 says, the great day of his wrath has come. Now, I've always interpreted that as, you know, it's, it's, it is here, it's been here, we're experiencing the wrath of God. And so I've always, of course, put, since I have hold the the first seal, which we agree is the un- unveiling of the Antichrist. Uh, I've always held that's the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks. Uh, we've always taken verse 17 then to be sort of uh, a summary statement of what's been happening, but it could be taken more, okay, now the 70th week of Daniel, the great day of the Lord's wrath is going to begin. All the pieces are in place and here we go. Is that kind of a, a uh, probably not nearly as eloquent, but is that a good summary of, of where you're coming from? Yeah, it is. Um, and I'm very cautious 
to introduce this alternative view of the timing of the seal judgments. I, I in my books I espouse here's the traditional view. The first seal starts the tribulation. Here's my alternative view. Here's the reasons why I don't think the other signatory is on the scene until the fourth seal. I don't think the fifth seal saints are asking a stupid question. I think they don't know how much longer. Uh, that's why they're asking God how long. Matter of fact, for several years, I've been talking to Tom about the very topics we're talking about, Tom Hughes. And he keeps going, I'm struggling with that fifth seal saints. Why are they asking that question? Remember, yeah. they will have seen the rapture. They will have seen Damascus get destroyed. They will have seen Ezekiel 38 and 39. They will be living at a time when prophetic awareness is at an all-time high. Lots of times I will say, I wish the church today would be like these people will be after the rapture. These people are going to be living and breathing, trying to find what the prophecy has to say about what's coming, because they're going to need to know. They're going to need to know how to survive. So for them to ask a question, how much longer is this, going to, this bloodshed going to go on, perpetrated by death in Hades, is a very relevant question, because they don't know how much longer. If they if they saw the covenant get confirmed in Daniel's 70th week on the white horseman, they could calendar the days of seven years. They're, they're going to know prophecy. There'll be 144,000 witnesses running around talking about prophecy. There'll be two witnesses in Jerusalem talking about prophecy. So, I mean, I think they're asking a very intelligent question because they're concerned about how much longer the bloodshed is going to go on for their loved ones, their neighbors. These are, these are souls under the altar who have died for their faith. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it definitely makes sense. It's it's part of a cumulative case that that you're making that you know really makes a lot of sense. Uh, on that one point, I would say the way I've answered that question before, and I think the traditional uh, view, what they would say is, yes, they understand that the, the tribulation is seven years, but it's more of rather than a precise, intelligent question as you as you characterized it, it's more of an impassioned, emotional question. Uh, it's kind like you know uh the the astros game seven recently we're big baseball fans at, at our house and uh my boys and we, we spent 15 years in houston and i spent high school and college in houston so we became astros fans even though in football we're cowboys fans but you know game seven was just brutal the, the astros lost i don't even remember what the final score was but at one point i turned it off when they were down 11 to 3 and i might cry out in the sixth seventh inning as they're just getting drubbed you know, how much longer? When is this going to end? Well, I know when it's going to end, when the last out is made in the ninth inning, but it's just, it's brutal. So, obviously, your your viewpoint it doesn't rise or fall precisely on that, you know, fifth seal, but it is very interesting. It makes a much more plausible sense for taking that question quite literally of, hey, we don't know the timetable because the 70th week hasn't begun yet. So when? So I really, I think it's something to think about. Well, I, I would, in your analogy of the Astros game, okay, the Fists of Saints are giving a, given a response. Uh, you will have to wait longer because there's two more Christian killing campaigns, crusades coming, the, the fellow servants and the brethren of the fellow servants. So it'd be like saying, you're saying, impassioned, uh, and what's going to happen is the Astros is going to win, and the answer being, well, they're going to do just great until that last inning. They've got to go through a terrible inning for the, you know. So in other words, I kind of think God's saying, look, you've got to go through this other sequence of time events. Yeah. Killing campaigns. So that's why I lean in that direction. I, I continue to say I could be wrong. Sure, sure. I used to subscribe to the traditional view, but as I've looked at it closer, I just think this may be where we're going on that. 
Yeah, fascinating. So um, as we as we get ready to wrap it up here, you know, bringing it back to current events and Israel's enemies, um, all of this that's happening now, as horrific as it is, uh, fits uh, the the biblical um, you know the biblical model, the the the, the roadmap for the end times uh, uh, prophecy. Things are uh, you know are are heating up. Um, it is. Probably, and this is me now, not Bill Salas. This is JB speaking. Probably going to uh, develop into a much broader uh, war, a, a global war, potentially even. It could be uh, what uh, ultimately brings down America. Uh, you know, just because Israel might, at, with God's uh, help, overcome these invaders you know in terms of god's prophetic timeline doesn't mean that you know the united states has the same uh, blessing because we're not you know we're not mentioned in that way we're not given those covenant promises and those prophecies uh so i just i think it's a it's a really unsettling time but yet at the same time and i've said this many times through the years it's an exciting time you know i i spent the last 17 years studying in depth that the luciferian conspiracy and how the stage is being set for the one world system it is it's unbelievable what's happening before our very eyes these are days like no other but at the same time this is not a time to be scared it's a time to be prepared and a time to keep you know looking up being watchful because we know that the lord is working out his plan precisely as he uh, as he as he wants i'll give you the last word anything else you wanted to to add here yeah i would think going back to the current scenario jb um one of the things we're not hearing right now in the midst of all the news coverage and everything is the elephant in the room. Before this, we're about 18 days into this conflict as we air this show, 19 maybe, depending when it comes on. And we before that time, news was coming out that Iran, this was a couple weeks prior to this 18-day conflict, Iran is two weeks away from having fissile material to have a nuclear weapon. We heard back in April they have a hypersonic missile that can get to Israel in 400 seconds and carry a nuclear warhead. Uh, we're not hearing the IAEA coming out. Guess what, you guys? Don't worry. Iran is not en enriching centrifuges anymore. <laughs> I think Iran has layered this with Hamas, and they've got plans for Hezbollah to act out pretty soon. Um, broader conflict with the proxies of Syria, et cetera, who has chemical weapons. Hezbollah is now trying to get their hands on those, may already have those. Uh, I think Iran is putting a nuclear weapon together. I think they may be putting more than one together. And I think that when they give the green light for the massive proxy war to happen, which could lead to the destruction of Damascus in Isaiah 17, maybe to Psalm 83, I think they're going to be prepared to have a nuclear weapon aimed at Israel, which means is Israel aware of that as well? Are they concerned about that as well? They're getting pressure right now by the Biden administration. Don't escalate things with Hezbollah. You can go ahead and take over, uh, take out the Hamas, but don't occupy the Gaza. You know, they're starting to put a lot of pressure on Israel. Keep the refugees inside of Israel and the Gaza. Don't send them to Egypt or Jordan because, you know, Egypt and Jordan doesn't want them. Uh, what it all comes down to, in my estimation, is have your viewers read Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 39. A time is going to come when the Lord is going to be fiercely angry with that Elam territory where all their underground missile silos and portable rocket launchers are. There are underground air bases there on the west coast of Iran. That's Elam ter ter territory. It says that the Lord's going to be fiercely angry. He's going to bring about a disaster. He's going to break the bow of Elam at the foremost of it might. He knows when they're going to try to launch something at Israel. He's going to stop that. 
He's going to stop it before they can. And I think they're about to try to do that. Because remember, the Lord is going to make his holy name known through Israel. And he cannot allow Iran or its proxies or the Psalm 83 countries to wipe Israel off the map. He's got plans to put the world on notice. He's the one true God. So in your scenario, I know we're wrapping up, but I can't, you, you bring up another question. In your, in your uh, scenario, you don't see much time elapsing between the Psalm 83 uh, and Isaiah 17 wars and the Gog and Magog war. They're pro- kind of back-to-back. Yeah, I would go real quickly in the sequence. Uh, you're going to see probably a proxy war spearheaded by Iran. Iran may be even involved. That would be part of Jeremiah chapter 49, 34 through 39. Israel finds itself in a prison rules war. And if you read Isaiah 17, Israel takes a hit, but they also take out a city. And they take out a city overnight, and that's the city of Damascus, as a statement. And, when they, and by the way, Syria is now back as a member in the Arab League. They were ostracized about 10 years ago, but now they're back in the Arab League. I think when the Arabs see Israel take out a new a city, probably nuclear, strategic nuke, overnight, Isaiah 17, they're going to be concerned about their cities, Beirut, Amman, Jordan, Cairo, Egypt, Mecca, Saudi Arabia. They're going to see Israel's taken out of city. They're going to see Israel's hurt from the proxy war. And they're going to probably come together in the final attempt to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem. And that would be the Psalm 83 scenario. So that's how I sequence these things. So Iran, as you mentioned earlier, is mentioned in two separate wars, uh, the first, uh, and then and then you've got the Gog-Magog eventually down the road. So if Iran does do something now, uh, that's not necessarily an indication that's Gog-Magog, right? Correct. And by the way, some of the critics who don't think Jeremiah 49 is a pending prophecy like Mark Hitchcock and Andy Woods. Uh, Mark Hitchcock came out and said it was Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled it back at the time of the Babylonians. But if you ask Mark right now, after the emails I've been sending to him, and after the chapter I put in the book on the future war prophecies, he's not saying that anymore. And Andy Woods hung his hat on what Mark said. Dr. David Reagan in his new book hung his hat on what Mark said. Now Mark's not saying that anymore. We're proving to these people that what we're talking about has not been historically fulfilled, and it's in my future war prophecies book. Yeah, and you know we, and I know your heart, and I and people know my heart. We love these guys. Andy's a dear friend. I've worked with him for years. I, I love Mark Hitchcock. He's a dear friend. You do too. They love you. Uh, this is not some type of uh, disagreement. You know, it's just a, an iron sharpening iron. All of us together studying the Word of God. I, I love the fact that you know you've been emailing Mark, and you guys are dialoguing about the same way you and I have. And you know, theology. I, I'm a systematic theo- theologian by trade. That's what my PhD is in. That's what I taught for many years. And, and my definition of, of systematic theology is that it's a process. It's not a product. We don't hand someone a book or an eight-volume set and say, here's my theology. It's not a product. It's a process. And we are constantly studying the Word of God, going back to the Scriptures, connecting the dots, and uh, you know, trying to, to make sense of what God's Word uh, reveals. And we've got to be uh, courageous enough to not let our time test you know time held truths that we thought we understood be be tweaked if the scriptures demand it and so that's why i love having you on i love having tom hughes on again doesn't mean we're in lockstep on everything i think people have a hard time people tend to think more black and white they have a hard time nuancing things um but uh you know we love mark and we love uh, andy again dear friends uh and but it's good to know that uh 
you know, with your scholarship and your work, it's it's challenging people to to really rethink some things. I appreciate that about you. So, CB, of course, we're all brothers in the Lord, and we're all going to be ending up in the same place. But what I don't want to do is stand before the Lord and say, well, good job, my faithful servant, but you really messed up on Psalm 83 and Jeremiah <laughs> and the Gap and the Fifth Seal of Saints. You know, <laughs> I you pray go. all the time, Lord, if I'm wrong, take me out of this ministry. But if, if I'm right, keep me going. Amen. No, I love it. Well, thank you all. Thank you, uh, Bill, for for your time. We'll have you on again for sure, and uh, we'll we'll talk offline and pick a date. Uh, but in the meantime, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Um, thank you all for listening. Remember, we've got John Haller on tomorrow. Can't wait to talk to him. Uh, he'll bring a, a perspective as well on some of this. And then uh, Saturday, we've got uh, Shane and Randy on the same podcast to talk about technology and warfare. Check out notbyworks.org. Lots of great resources there. And as always, if we can ever help you with anything, don't hesitate to reach out. I would be remiss if I didn't end because I know with the, what's going on in Israel, there's a lot of people that may not normally talk about the Bible or look into the Bible or listen to Bible shows, uh, and therefore they may not be Christians. I, I want to make sure we end by reminding you that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if by God's providence you've stumbled upon this discussion between me and Bill Salas and you're not confident you're going to spend eternity in heaven when you die, let me encourage you to settle that issue today. You don't have to wait. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone as the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life? Uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So whatever else you're trusting or hoping in, uh, set it aside and place your faith squarely in the one who took your place on the cross and died and rose again for your sins. For those of you who already know the Lord, continue to trust him and uh, look up and be watchful. God bless you, everyone. Until next time.